Welcome back to the Boss Ladies Podcast, hosted by myself, Swalia, and my co-host, Monacy. Today, we're here with Dr. Darnell, and if you could introduce yourself, that would be perfect. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Beth Darnell, and I'm a professor at Stanford University in the School of Medicine, Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative, and Pain Medicine. I also direct the Stanford Pain Relief Innovations Lab. Um, My background is I'm a clinical psychologist, and very clearly I specialize in pain and non-pharmacologic pain treatments. I help people with pain of all different types, whether it's acute pain or post-surgical pain or chronic pain from a variety of medical conditions. Um, I help people learn and understand what they can do to help reduce their own pain and suffering. And I also have a fair amount of research focused on helping people reduce medications for pain if if that's a focus that they're interested in. Um, I mentor a lot of students, postdocs, and have some amazing colleagues that help me um, with all of the scientific efforts that I have underway that we're doing together. Um, I just briefly want to mention a, a couple of points about the research studies that I lead. These are large-scale, national, multi-site clinical trials involving two and 3,000 people in total. And so we can enroll people from all over the United States, sometimes even different countries, and um, connect them with various methods for pain relief. So I'll be pleased to chat with you about what some of those are. Yeah, we're excited to dive into all of that later in this episode. Thanks for such a great introduction. Um, I want to click kick off with more about your background. I know you mentioned this in, in your introduction, but you actually have two PhDs, one in clinical psychology and one in physical medicine and rehabilitation. So I'm curious, like what led you to pursue the area of physical medicine rehabilitation following your work in clinical psychology? And how did any of your you know PhD work maybe center um, around carving a deeper niche at the intersection of both of those um, throughout your career. And I know now you're working in sort of behavioral medicine for pain. So um, I'm sure that, you know, I'm, I'd be curious to hear more about how your PhD experience shaped that. Yeah, sure. So um, my PhD is in clinical psychology. And then um, I went on to do a postdoc doctoral research fellowship at Johns Hopkins University, um, really focusing in PM&R. So so that was a postdoctoral fellowship, but not a separate PhD. So just to clarify that. So um, my doctoral degree in clinical psychology, uh, I did that at Boulder, Colorado, um, Department of Psychology. And what was interesting was there wasn't really a focus on health or behavioral health in that program. Um, So that just wasn't part of it. Pain psychology was not part of my training, not part of my background. But I went from, you know, my doctoral coursework to a clinical internship at the VA hospital in Tucson, Arizona. So I'm working with veterans and, you know, veterans are very obviously they're older. They have a lot of depression, pain, PTSD, um, a lot of medical issues that they're dealing with. But pain was pretty central to to, um, a lot of my clinical care. So I gained a lot of expertise working in the VA. And from there went on to Johns Hopkins to pursue uh, my postdoc training where I was working with patients who had um, amputation, spinal cord injury, catastrophic burn, um, or other major medical um, conditions and surgeries that required inpatient rehabilitation. So I was working with medically severe patients, and a commonality across all of these different patient populations was pain. It was pain management. Everybody um, was coping with um, pain associated to the issues that they were having. And so I really experienced that as being foundational to my clinical work, um, working with medical populations, um, which is fairly intuitive. It's, It's interesting because it wasn't part of my training. And, you know, back in the day, and even to this day, 
it's not well integrated into medical care. It's not well integrated into psychological training or medical training. And when we're not particularly informed, we don't, we're not competent, we don't feel skilled, we tend to not want to engage with something. This is pretty, you know, natural human experience, um, natural human response to not feeling skilled is that you kind of shy away from it. Um, but I found that I really gravitated towards working with people with pain, people who were suffering. I felt naturally very comfortable with human suffering, whereas um, other people were not. And and so therefore, you know, based on how people were responding to me and connecting to me, um, it was very rewarding because I felt effective. I saw that I was effective in working with populations that other people um, might not want to work with. And so, so I just, you know, I observed that and, and there's reasons for that. I had uh, experiences of suffering myself when I was younger. Um, I had chronic pain when I was younger. So as a child, as an adolescent, young adult in college, I had um, pain myself and, and I didn't get good answers from the medical system. I would have really benefited from working with a pain psychologist when I was that age, um, but that wasn't made available to me. So I kind of had to bumble through a lot of my twenties trying to figure it out. Um, not ideal. Um, but I think having moved through that personal experience myself, later acquiring kind of the knowledge, the training and the skills that combined to help me be able to be with patients at a at a deep level. And I think to be more effective, because again, you know, I was more comfortable with it, but I could also connect with patients from a perspective of having been a patient as well. Um, so that really resonated with me. And from there, I went to Oregon Health and Science University where I took my first faculty position working as a pain psychologist in a pain clinic at OHSU um, in 2005. And that's been just my singular specialty um, since then. So, so I've been in the field for a while now. Yeah, thank you so much for that, like, in-depth overview of your career. I think it's really interesting to hear just, like, the breadth of experience that you have um, and also to hear that this space in particular also comes from personal experience as well. I think um, whenever you have a very, like, personal, like, lived experience for the space that you're working in, it always adds so much value for the people that you serve because you are that person like you are the patient right you're also creating solutions that would have benefited you um at the time you needed that treatment um so i was also curious to hear also uh why the treatment of chronic pain is an area that's so often overlooked as we think about the new frontier of patient-led and patient-first healthcare innovation despite the fact that like you were mentioning chronic pain is something that's really personal and remains highly unquantifiable um, do you think like fears or taboos in the scientific community around topics like addiction might play a role and why there's been such little focus and innovation um, in the chronic pain treatment space? You know, it's it's a great question. I think um, I think two things, you know, uh, pain is really unique and it's it's outside of a lot of people's comfort zone because it's not exactly objectively quantifiable. It is by its very definition, a subjective experience. And so, so that's one reason, you know, that, that gets outside of people's comfort zone. It's like, well, there's not just a measure for it. We can't just scan people's brains or we can't test their blood. And so there's aspects of it that fall slightly adjacent of sort of the allopathic medical systems comfort zone, just, just by that alone, because by definition, you're sort of getting into this other realm, which involves psychology. And, um, you know, psychology is actually baked into the definition of pain. Most people don't realize this. So this is like another reason. So pain, we think of pain as just being the hurt we feel in our body, right? It's a sensation that we feel a, a negative sensory experience. But, but the International Association for the Study of Pain defines pain as a negative or noxious 
sensory and emotional experience. So psychology is baked into the definition, but we don't treat it that way. We don't evaluate it that way. We evaluate pain as a number, zero to 10, and kind of treat a number, but really pain is a whole person experience. There's so much that goes into it. And so to really be able to best treat pain, we need to get to know the person, the individual and what's happening. Um, especially when it comes to chronic pain, because that involves so much of a person's life and what's happening day to day. How well are they sleeping? What are the, you know, what are the stresses uh, on their body as they're moving through their environment? You know, how's their nutrition? How, how are, you know, all of these different factors bear on that number. So we just asked someone, what's your pain zero to 10? And it, you know, it, it is what it is. This is how we evaluate it. But we have to come into a deep understanding of how reductive that can be and, and why we need to really spend time with people to fully understand what's happening now, what happened in the past, what's the best way for them to learn how to best manage their own symptoms, even within the context of the medical care. You know, maybe they are going to be prescribed medications, or maybe there's a medical procedure, um, but it really shouldn't stop with the doctor and what the doctor is doing. Um, because the best way to treat pain is to deeply engage the person and help them understand what they can do to best help themselves. Um, so yeah, ideally, there's a great team around a person. But in the day to day, um, it's about helping people really develop that self-efficacy to help themselves. So we need it from all these directions, right? But most doctors, they're they're not trained how to help us patients develop self-efficacy to self-manage pain. That's not in their discipline. It's not in their domain or their wheelhouse. This necessarily involves behavioral experts, um, you know, of, of various types. And so I think, I think that's part of it, you know, why it's been fragmented. Um, because in order to best treat pain, you need more than a doctor. <laughs> you know, you really, you really do. You need, you need that whole team. I really appreciate your answer. I think the whole idea of like to treat pain, you need more of a doctor. And I think that the idea that doctors you know can't always be the ones that are giving patients those tools of self-efficacy and all the other qualities that you're talking about to develop you know proper approaches towards treating this pain and um i think it's interesting to think about again pain as this bigger intersection of psychology and you know pathology i think that even preparing for this episode really challenged like my own perceptions around what i view as pain so um i think that's like really interesting to hear about and i think like diving deeper into that i think pain is I think for most people sort of viewed as a very um, like peripheral, peripheral disease or sort of physical pathology, right? Um, but I think that pain, you know, from what I understand is also kind of the result of abnormal amplification within the nervous system. So I'm curious like how, um, if you could talk more about how pain or the idea of pain is uh, potentially a consequence of even, um, you know, the nervous system, maybe a disease state of the nervous system itself. Um, and sort of, I guess, how we draw the line between viewing pain as something that maybe there's like a physical disease or physical pathology within a person and um, in combination also maybe something going wrong with the nervous system. Yeah, no, these are, um, you know, it's a great starting point for a conversation around the complexity of pain, really. Um, I think one of the foundational principles or concepts to, to ground us is just an understanding that it's going to be different for each and every person. And so, you know, often there will, you know, there'll be a desire to kind of understand pain very generally, but it ends up being pretty individual and specific to what a person's circumstances are, what their medical diagnoses are, what's their history, what are the factors that could have led to a sensitization or a hypersensitization of the nervous system. And some of those can be biologic or genetic, or and some of them can be actual responses to the environment or psychological in nature. So it's, it's all of these factors um, kind of coming to bear 
in in you know various ways and in various weights to to coalesce on a person's um, ultimate experience. Um, you know, within the context of sort of general um, sensory experience, like let's say, you know, we all undergo surgery, you know, and there's going to be post-surgical pain as a consequence of, of the surgical injury of the incision. And that's expected. And that's a natural consequence of, of having surgery. But we may all respond differently to that incision and to the amount um, and in terms of the expression of the amount of pain we may experience. And so, you know, that's kind of where all of our history and our current circumstances, our health, our immune system, um, stress, our sleep, our nutrition, you know, what deficiencies we may have, um, nutritional deficiencies, for instance, all of this comes to bear, which will influence the amount of pain that we experience, the duration of pain that we experience that pain. And it can also predict whether or not that pain resolves after surgery or whether it becomes chronic. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's just so deeply multifactorial. We can make certain predictions based on a diagnosis that a person has. But even within that, you know, some people can have major diagnoses and ultimately their pain resolves over time. And for other people, their pain persists. And, you know, there's often this big question of why. Well, we don't always know why, but we do know about a lot of the contributing factors as to uh, that informs the whys. It's not exactly a total explanation, but it can more deeply inform us. Um, there is some pretty cool research going on at Stanford right now. Um, Dr. Sean Mackey is leading an NIH-funded pain biomarker study in which he's deeply characterizing people with um, uh, musculoskeletal pain and trying to understand the predictors, both for a, a person's current status, but also their prognosis for their pain, what happens over time longitudinally. And so they're doing neuroimaging, they're characterizing the microbiome, they're looking at genetics and, and various omics, um, looking at some you know physical uh, capacity measures as well as psychological measures and then anchoring all of this information within the context of a person's diagnoses and duration of pain and various factors um, there's there's a lot that's known and there's even more that's not known but I just wanted to mention that there are some pretty interesting studies right now that are especially cool because they're not just looking at one of these factors in isolation like one predictor in isolation but trying to better understand at a systems level how these various predictors interact um, synergize with each other to reveal deeper insights about pain and you know why some people get better versus other people who don't, why pain persists, and ultimately how to reduce pain and ideally help pain resolve. Yeah, I find it really interesting to hear you talk about different solutions and sort of advancements and tools being used to, again, assess pain, come up with the treatments, um, because I've mostly read more into like alternative treatments for like uh, mental health or uh, like developmental trauma. So like one of the books that's like really well known in this space is The Body Keeps the Score. And so that book basically breaks down like alternative solutions to like uh, mental health conditions that are not yeah. necessarily like prescription based. So some of the things it mentions will just be like physical, like uh, activity, things like yoga or like acupuncture, cupping. Um, but one thing that it says in the book that I think is really interesting is because drugs have become so profitable, major medical journals rarely publish studies on non-drug treatments of mental health problems. Mainstream medicine is firmly committed to better life through chemistry and the fact that we can actually change our own physiology and inner equilibrium by means other than drugs is rarely considered. So I'd really love to hear you speak on the current landscape of pain treatment for patients through which is which is primarily prescription based, 
um, and how your work specifically has focused on investigating novel pain treatments that uses uh, positive thinking to optimize for pain management and other psychological treatments. Yeah, you know, um, you hit on a really good point, which is that um, I think for for decades, the, the primary focus of pain management really and truly has been a biomedical approach. And, you know, I always say we need the biomedical approach. We need medical evaluations. We need doctors to evaluate what's happening with a person structurally or from a disease state. But when that is applied in isolation, um, that can be a huge disservice to the individual because we're, we're failing to treat the other half of the definition of pain. We're not really diving deeply into some of the environmental factors or personal factors that may be maintaining pain and instead focusing just on medicating pain, but not necessarily getting at some of these deeper factors that could help really help pain resolve. Um, and, you know, for some people, I mean, really not just reduce it, but resolve it. So, you know, this is, this is my life's work. This is uh, what we do as um, pain psychologists. It's, it was interesting, you know, when I first started working at Oregon Health and Science University, again, I mentioned, you know, it was like 2005, this is a long time ago. And um, back then, a lot of opioids were prescribed to treat pain. And a lot of people were given high doses of opioids. And they weren't, helping a lot of people. They were, you know, I will, I go on the record saying opioids do help some people. I mean, some people have major medical conditions. They really need access to the medication. They make a big difference, but we know they shouldn't be first line treatments. And back then um, they were given out very liberally. And so I found myself working with people who would come to me and say, you know, can you help me reduce this medication or get off this medication. So I spent a fair number of years helping people do that and learn different ways to manage pain. And, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm leading one of the largest prescription opioid tapering studies in the United States. It's, um, you know, it's, it's actually, we're going to have results early next year. So I'm pretty excited. We've been doing this study for six years. Um, but that's the focus of it, which is helping people who want to reduce their pain medication. We help them do so safely and effectively and then provide them with different ways to be able to manage pain and symptoms. And it's been it's been deeply rewarding work because, you know, people nobody wants to take medication. They really don't. People take medication because that's what's offered. And usually it's the only thing that's offered. Um, and of course, you know, my caveat always, always is that there are people for whom um, opioid medication do work. I actually spend a fair amount of time advocating for people who really do benefit from opioids to have right access to it. Um, but what we really need in the United States and in other Western countries where this is an issue is we really need right discernment around prescribing. So prescribing the right amount for the right person at the right time and not prescribing um, for people for whom other methods would be more effective. If we come into awareness that you know opioids shouldn't be a first line treatment, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is a good first line treatment for pain? And in 2018, um, there was a publication that came out in The Lancet, and this was an expert review and consensus panel, and they put forward that pain education and cognitive behavioral therapy for pain should be first-line treatments for chronic low back pain. Now, chronic low back pain is the you know, largest or the, the number one uh, pain condition really worldwide. It's, it's, you know, has the greatest prevalence and incidence worldwide for chronic pain. Um, so they said, you know, the, the evidence suggests that this should be the first line treatment. But, you know, we, we laugh because nobody gets this as first line treatment. We usually wait until people have failed multiple biomedical treatment approaches. 
And then when people are demoralized because they're not getting any benefit from the medical system, that's the point at which people are often referred to one of these treatments or to, to a pain psychologist. And that can be very demoralizing for someone because what they hear is, oh, you think it's all in my head or you think my pain isn't real or you're, you think you're giving up on me. And, and you're tossing me off to a psychologist like this is a psychological problem. And so my life's work has really been focused on making these interventions and, and tools that are evidence-based, they're effective, they're non-pharmacologic, um, and providing them to people as early on in the process as possible, ideally as first-line treatments, so that we can prevent people from going down an over-medicalized pathway that you know may, may be insufficiently addressing a person's pain, really integrating, you know, creating, investigating, and providing interventions that enable this whole person pain care to be implemented worldwide. Thank you so much for your answer. I like really appreciate the depth in that. And I think it's really interesting to think about sort of that shift in approach from not just a biomedical approach to pain, but really thinking about, again, like the psychology of it. And I think that sort of what you were saying at the end about like preventing people from going down over medicalized pathway is like really, really interesting to hear because I think that is so true. And you talked about that previously a lot. Um, but I also really appreciate kind of you touching on sort of opioids and kind of the whole crisis surrounding that and sort of different views that people, healthcare professionals, patients have on that topic. Um, but I'd love to kind of break that down before we kind of go a little bit deeper into like your work with um, Empowered Relief and all of, you know, the other things that you've worked on. Um, but I would love to kind of hear maybe your take more on the neurological mechanisms through which opioids operate and how they're so effective. Um, I know that um, Anna Lemke is someone I really like listening to, and she's like a psychologist, and she talks a lot about sort of addiction, relapse, and all of these things, um, not just in the context of opioids, but it's something that she's talked about. And um, I know that's something that she kind of talks about is how relapses um, or, you know, sort of addiction, relapse, those cycles are triggered, not just by a memory of the, you know, drug that may a patient may be using, but sort of by just any severe trauma or any sort of, you know, general intense pain. So I can assume, obviously, the cycle is much more intensified for patients that are undergoing chronic pain. And I know, like, one sort of experiment she's referenced is um, there's, like, a, you know, study with rats. And if, you know, rats learn to stop pressing a lever where they get cocaine and they kind of, like, you know, untrain that pathway, but um, they experience a severe shock, they'll kind of run back to that lever, even though they've untrained that pathway. Um, and so I just think that I'd love to hear more about sort of cycles of addiction and opioid use and maybe how that kind of perpetuates, especially in patients with chronic pain. Yeah, you know, well, I, I will freely declare that addiction is not my area of expertise. So I don't work with people with addiction, um, but I very specifically work with people who have chronic pain who are not addicted, um, who tend to use prescription opioids. I mean, I can 100% confirm that people who have addiction will often cite that pain was the precipitant to them using this, a substance, whether that was opioids or alcohol or marijuana. I mean, you name it, you name the substance, but pain, physical pain is often a precipitant to use. Um, and so the substance being obviously um, a source of comfort and numbing. And so, you know, that generalizes whether it's physical pain or whether it's emotional pain, there, you know, is a, a cycle and, um, you know, that's the addictive pathway involved. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, I, I work with people very specifically who have pain, who don't have addiction. Um, and, and really work with that. And, but I'll, you know, I'll say, you know, if we're, if, if we're prescribed a medication for a pain and we're told by our doctor, okay, here's your, here's your pain medication and you can take it um, on this schedule. And you can also take 
this prescription as needed. Here's how you do it. And, and so when we feel pain, we're going to take that medication as prescribed. That's the way that it, you know, that's sort of intuitive that that's baked into the learning and in isolation, that is really a disservice because we're not then teaching people lower risk, non-medication based ways to also address pain. And so if we fail to do that, what we can unwittingly cultivate is an over-reliance on the medication as the singular pathway to achieve relief. And I think now in 2023, this is so obvious and intuitive how problematic this is. And that especially if someone had a lot of risk factors for addiction, this is an absolute recipe for disaster. Um, but even if people don't have risk factors, even in the absence of addiction, we recognize that this is very simply a disservice to people, that we don't want people only focusing on a medication for relief and Instead, we want to help people learn what they can do so they can reduce medications, keep them at an absolute minimum. If you don't need them, great. But if you do, to need and use as little of that medication as possible. All medications have side effects. All medications have risks, every single one. And so if we're focusing on reducing risks and then we just recognize we need we absolutely need to be supplying people with non-pharmacologic interventions that are lowest risk and to apply those first um, as a pathway to mitigate compounding risks. Addiction is just one of the risks. You know, there's just there's so many risks associated with medications and um, addiction gets all of the attention. Um, it's the big, sexy story that everyone wants to focus on. Um, but also, I just think, you know, equally tragic is just the fact that people are not getting the pain relief that they deserve. And that when people are living in pain, they don't have, you know, broad-based strategies to manage their pain. They're suffering then they're, they have less capacity to, to do what they want to do in life, to, to lead a meaningful life and, and to feel like, you know, a person's like living their destiny or moving towards goals that are meaningful. And, and over time that becomes depressing. And, um, so to, to me, but, you know, I'm, I'm not in the addiction world. So I, I, I applaud people who really focus on addiction because the world deeply, deeply needs it. Um, but, you know, because I'm, I'm adjacent to that, working with people in pain, that's what I see as the big tragedy in this space where people would be suffering needlessly and accepting, um, you know, needless risks simply because our system was not set up to truly, truly address pain as a, as a population humanitarian issue that it is. Yeah, thank you so much for still sharing your thoughts on this topic, even as someone who's not necessarily focused on this in your specific line of work. I think it's so interesting to hear your perspective, um, given your experiences as well. Um, and I also want to dive deeper into, again, your specific uh, work that you have published uh, and been working on, uh, which is Empowered Relief. Um, so I think one thing that's really interesting, or there are a lot of interesting things about Empowered Relief, but I remember reading also um, that part of Empowered Relief is also like um, part of the research was you comparing like the effectiveness of doing empowered relief sessions which are like two hours so basically pain interventions and comparing that to 16 hours of like cognitive behavior behavioral therapy and again how the main focus is to use like positive thinking to uh, optimize for pain management so again an alternative to like pharmacologic pharma like drug based oh, uh, okay uh, an alternative to drug-based solutions. Um, so can you dive deeper into Empowered Relief um, sure. and how it rapidly, again, equips individuals with pain relief skills for chronic pain, acute pain, and for surgical recovery? Yeah, yeah. So um, as you mentioned, Empowered Relief is a, a one-session intervention. It um, It's led by uh, a certified instructor 
and it can be delivered to large groups of people. So enabling um, really rapid access at a, at a much bigger level than our other interventions. Um, I do want to clarify, you know, Empowered Relief really isn't just about thinking positively or positive thought techniques. Um, and, and I'll tell you, uh, really unpack for you what it is. So in the course of that two hours, there's a lot that happens. There is um, some pain neuroscience education that is presented and explained at a lay level so that people can understand it. But it's this fundamental education around sort of the, the neurobiology of pain and why our minds matter within the context of pain. Um, we ed provide education around the connection between stress and pain. And we talk about how to work with your nervous system to gain relief. And there are three key um, techniques or strategies that people learn to calm their nervous system. And over the course of the, the two hours, people complete a personalized plan for pain relief. So, you know, learning information is interesting and important, but in isolation, that's not what changes anything for people. What changes um, and gives people a different result and, and benefits is when they apply that information to themselves. This is always true for any of us. And so um, they're learning during the class, but then they're developing their own plan, which sets them up with a roadmap for their own personal relief. So they're, they're tailoring the inf information. So they have that roadmap to take with them. They have an understanding of how to apply the skills and are creating that plan, that commitment for when they will use those skills. And then we, we make it easy for them. It, it includes a binaural um, app so people can download that on their phone. It's just one of the tools that they use in their personalized plan. Um, but really in the course of, of two hours, they are given the information they need. They put that into action and then they have all of the take takeaways in order to implement that in their daily lives. Um, so yeah, we were really um, so pleasantly surprised and pleased to see that it's been shown to be non-inferior to 16 hours of cognitive behavioral therapy at three months post-treatment in our new um, forthcoming publication extends that out to six months. So when you think about that two hours versus 16 hours, it just inspires us to think about the scalability, the efficiency of a one-time intervention to impart um, clinically significant and lasting change over time. And, and this is really important because a lot of areas in the United States and around the world, they're under-resourced. You know, people don't have enough therapists. They don't have um, the money or the time or the ability to treat people, each person for 16 hours, even small groups of people. And so um, we're excited to be putting forward one solution that is um, shown to be evidence-based and, and very scalable. It's being delivered in 25 countries and in seven languages. Um, so we've been seeing some pretty rapid um, adoption um, around the world. Yeah, thank you so much for diving so much deeper into Empowered Relief and kind of all of the work that's going on there. I think that you talked about a lot of things, even sort of what you touched on at the end with accessibility um, and how I think the treatment is formulated to meet the needs of specific populations as much as possible, rather than being, again, this generalized framework that doesn't really work for everyone, especially when it comes to how personalized um, chronic pain is and how, you know, consequently how personalized uh, recovery also needs to be. Um, I think that like one of the quotes that's like on the website or like on your website is that most of the 100 million plus people in the U.S. living with pain don't have easy access to surgery or carefully managed pain medications or an eight session cognitive behavioral therapy to gain pain management skills. So um, I think just 
tackling all of those issues simultaneously through your work is really, really beautiful to hear about. And I really appreciate you kind of diving deeper into that. Um, I would love to, you know, before we close out this episode, talk about your work at the Stanford Pain Relief Innovations Lab as well. Um, I know you are the director of Stanford's Pain Relief Innovations Lab, which is dedicated to improving the lives of people with acute and chronic pain um, through developing and investigating pain relief interventions that are both accessible and scalable. Um, I know that you specifically lead the NIH and PCORI funded clinical trials that broadly investigate behavioral medicine as treatment pathways for this pain. Um, I'm curious if you could dive deeper into some of the lab's um, current projects. I know that these include the Empower study and the Progress study, um, which look at voluntary opioid reduction and pain relief for chronic pain, respectively. I know we touched on this throughout this episode, but I'd love to hear more about um, maybe the design of these trials, kind of, I guess, what stage they're in. Um, and yeah, just like would love to hear hear more about them. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I mentioned the Empower study um, which is effective management of pain and opioid-free ways to enhance relief. Um, that is the acronym for EMPOWER. We've been running this study for six years, and we close it next month, um, which is super exciting. We have a total of 1,450 patients enrolled. So we've been enrolling people around the United States who are taking prescription opioids. We're um, everyone who enrolls in the tapering study is working with their physician to reduce their opioid medication in a very patient-centered way. So we focus on increasing um, patient control over the pace of their taper, whether they taper at all. Um, they can stop the taper if they want to. These are the, our core principles is that if you help people be in control, that helps reduce anxiety and fear and helps with symptom management and helps them achieve their best result. Within the context of opioid reduction, we're studying the relative or additive benefit of patients who engage either with um, a six-week chronic pain self-management program or with cognitive behavioral therapy. So these are multi-session treatments where people learn about pain, uh, a range of skills and tools to manage pain non-pharmacologically. And what we're hoping to show in our data, let's see what happens, but we're hoping to show that our, taper, our patient-centered tapering methods are safe and effective, that people get a good result when you reduce opioids using our methods. And we're hoping to show, and we'll be interested if we show, whether these non-pharmacologic supportive interventions facilitate an even uh, greater benefit in terms of pain relief as well as opioid reduction. So we're gonna have those results very soon. We're also focused on characterizing stigma that patients experience as a consequence of living with pain um, as a consequence of taking prescription opioids, patients are really stigmatized now in our culture if they take these medications. Um, and so we're focusing on bringing forward the patient voice and telling their stories about their experiences so that there's a greater understanding among public, among the public, among clinicians um, and policy makers and other stakeholders about the challenges that are faced by patients, the barriers that they experience when trying to access the care that they need. So we're very much focused on that in, in identifying and telling the stories of vulnerable, marginalized patient populations. So this is a core um, philosophy Another large national trial that is active right now is the PROGRESS study. And in this study, this is funded by PCORI, and we are studying 1,200 patients with chronic pain from across the United States. And we are they're randomized to one of two treatments. They either receive empowered relief over Zoom, or they receive traditional eight-session CBT over Zoom. And so for the first time, we're comparing these two interventions very broadly in people who have chronic pain of all types. And we hope to be able to show for whom does which treatment work best? 
um, because we have shown non-inferiority for empowered relief to CBT in chronic low back pain, but that doesn't mean we should throw away CBT or these longer course treatments that we know works. Rather, we wanna be able to say for whom does which treatment work best under which types of circumstances. And then we can direct people to the intervention that's best for them um, right out of the gate. So it's, it, it has to do with um, better matching patients to, to treatment. So that's one of the core principles of the PROGRESS study, which is active now. We have another study um, funded by NIDA in which we're studying digital empowered relief. Um, that means when a version of it that's on demand, um, people can get it on their smartphone, they can get it, just get it on their computer. It's self-paced. And this study is tailored to people who have prescription opioid misuse or opioid use disorder and chronic pain. Um, so that's active. We are also um, building out a portfolio of digital non-pharmacologic treatments that may target other factors that a person may be experiencing, such as sleep disturbance or trauma, for instance. So this can be a very big issue um, for people. And we want to be able to provide them with the supportive tools that are available on demand um, to provide them, study them, and bring forward the evidence on them. So this is a, a big focus of our work right now as well. Oh, I want to double check if you have a hard stop right now. Um, I do not have a hard stop, although my phone is about to die, so I might need to go plug it in if we're going to talk for a few more minutes. Okay, I just wanted to ask about your role as Chief Science Advisor at Applied VR, because as you were oh, mentioning, yeah, yeah like... Um, you've been exploring and investing in uh, digital therapeutics uh, yep. for this space. So Applied VR is specifically the first company to apply the comprehensive research rigor of traditional medical uh, device development to virtual reality therapeutics. Can you walk us through the design of the product, the patient experience, and especially the role of biometric data collection and how it's collected and synthesized by Applied VR to improve the product and service? Yeah, yeah, I love... Um... I love this, the integration of pain psychology and virtual reality. It's just been a, a, an amazing partnership. So um, as you mentioned, I'm the chief science advisor for Applied VR. And at Applied VR, we created the first, you know, immersive 3D immersive digital therapeutic for chronic low back pain. And what's unique about it is that it is, um, skills-based. So a lot of times people think about virtual reality and they're like, oh, it's games, it's distraction. Um, but this is more than that. This really um, provides education. People engage in, in various um, exercises and it's skills building so that people really acquire that understanding for how they can work with mind and body for pain relief so that even when they're outside of the headset, um, they have pain relief and we have um, our, the product the, um, that has been under study is an eight week product. And so people use the headset every day for, you know, six to eight minutes duration. So these are brief modules. You engage with that every day for eight weeks. So it's 56 sessions. And then we published a lot of papers on the efficacy of the device immediately post-treatment, three months post-treatment, six months, 18 months, and even 24 months post-treatment. So they use the device for 56 days and then they return it. So they're not continuing to use it. It's not an ongoing thing. But what our data shows is that if you use the device for this brief amount of time over the course of two months at home, you know, you just have the device at home, and uh, what it does is it imparts clinically meaningful benefits that are lasting. You know, those benefits last. Um, and so we have that efficacy data published out to two years. And that's really exciting um, because I think, you know, these treatments that are on demand, that are effective, 
um, are really have the capacity to, tr to transform the way that we treat pain, um, the ways in which patients can engage with them. And so it's been a super exciting venture. Applied VR got um, the de novo designation, which is the first FDA authorization for a VR device for chronic low back pain. And earlier this year, they also received from CMS the first billing code for the device. So it makes possible physicians and other clinicians to prescribe the device. So it's prescribed in office and then it's male patients just receive the device at home, open up the box, put on the headset, they can start treating themselves. That's so amazing to hear about. Thank you so much for like diving into that and talking about sort of your work at Applied VR and what Applied VR is doing. That's so interesting to hear. And I'm so excited to hear that now it's something that can even be prescribed. And it's something that, again, sort of follows that theme and idea of self-efficacy and patients really being able to have control and autonomy over their treatment and choosing what timeline works best for them. And um yeah. Yeah, I just like really appreciate your insight throughout this episode. I am so glad we got to dive into so many different intersections of pain and the time that we had and really kind of pick your brain about the intersection of, you know, biology, psychology, um, even sociology, and even trying to understand like why even things like opioid prescription are so, you know, um, stigmatized and kind of looked down on upon society. But, you know, I think you said earlier um, you know, patients obviously undergo addiction sometimes, but I think just as tragic as patients that aren't able to get the help and treatment that they yeah. need. And so, yeah, I really appreciate just the insight and the wisdom you shared throughout this episode. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much for this episode. Again, I loved hearing your perspective and again, hearing about your work. I think again, it's so, so vital, especially when you look at like zoom out at the larger like uh, healthcare system and again, providing uh, solutions that are accessible uh, and uh, effective for patients. Well, Manasi and Swelia, it's been, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And it's been a delight to share my work with you um, and keep up the great work with this fabulous podcast.